a long time ago, in a continent far, far away. A History of the United States Episode 53 The Anglo-Dutch Wars, Part 3 Revenge of the Dutch War The English settlements of New York is crumbling under attacks by the ruthless Dutch Lord, William of Orange. There are heroes on both sides. Evil is everywhere. In a stunning move, the fiendish Dutch leader, Captain Glove, has swept into the region and taken Governor Lovelace, leader of the English colony. As the separatist Dutch army attempts to flee the besieged capital with their valuable hostage, two Jedi Knights lead a desperate mission to rescue the captive Chancellor. Okay, wait, wait, yeah, I'm, I'm getting overdramatic again. My apologies. Okay, back to business. In our last episode, we had a busy week of founding colonies, in addition to going back and covering the early backwards character of colonial New York. We went through the foundation stories of New Jersey, Delaware, and Vermont. Today, we move away from the abstract and back to the narrative, as we hinted at last time. The colony had to deal with the major issue of merging its English and Dutch characters together. This was not something any other English colony had to deal with before. They were all distinctly homogenous. It was also something that must be overcome. If resentment were to get out of hand, from one side or the other, then the colony could not possibly survive. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate is the path to the dark side. The other major factor at play was the inverse of Rhode Island. New York struggled to understand its legitimacy, but in reverse compared to Rhode Island. You'll recall how the Rhode Islanders attempted to understand how their townships worked through various theories based upon the consent of the governed and democratic ideals, but at the same time we needed some connection to the old world. Which is why they fought so fiercely for a royal charter. New York had the exact opposite problem. It was a province controlled by the Duke of York, the brother of the king. He had absolute power in the region and its inhabitants swore oaths to the king. The process was made even simpler in 1685, when James became king and the intermediate step 
could be skipped. New York was a royal colony. This sounds very straightforward, but in practice, it made for a rather complicated setup. Had James taken an active role in the province, things might have been different, but he was an absentee landlord. He never visited New York, not even once. He had tremendous power, but he never allowed for institutions to be seriously developed. Representative democracy was not encouraged, in stark contrast to the New England colonies. This produced a void. There was a higher power at work, sure, but that power didn't enter people's lives. They found it very difficult to understand the system. Out there, on the outer rim of the English world, people had to look after themselves. It would arguably take until the 1760s for the process to be sufficiently resolved that New York had an infrastructure resembling other colonies, but this century of confusion is an odyssey, one which would surprise the new student of American history, but when you realise that New York should be considered a backwater, begins to make sense. That isn't to say that nothing was done about the situation. The first governor of New York was Colonel Richard Nichols. He executed the decision to conquer New Netherland, and then took over as governor and began the process of making sense of the situation. It was a position he would hold for three years until 1667. He began to set up something of a colonial governing apparatus, but he's most famous for creating something known as the Duke's Laws. The Duke's Laws were designed to rule over a number of Dutch and English settlements on Long Island, which later spread out for use over the whole colony. They were a mixture of English and Dutch law, and as a result, they were a mixture that nobody was familiar with and that nobody particularly liked. He removed English ideas such as freemanship, public education, and an elected assembly, and introduced Dutch elements of religious toleration, and double nomination of officials. He also ordered that all landowners surrender their land grants, and then issued renewals. This made sense as a way to break legal authority to the Dutch, but was viewed as unnecessarily complicated by most people. The code was rather vague, and New York experienced a great deal of local variation, something perhaps beneficial because of its mixed population. Many Dutch changed their names to sound more English, as we discussed last time, but it is equally important to talk about the things that didn't change during the transition. While the names of officers became English, the officers still existed, and in many cases their holders continued to be Dutch. The names of some places did change, Beverwick famously changing to Albany, but others did not change. The Dutch Lang Island stuck as Long Island, despite efforts by the English to rename the island Yorkshire. Similar efforts were made to rename the village of Harlem, now an area of New York City in Upper Manhattan, to be Lancaster. Needless to say, both of these attempts were spectacularly unsuccessful. Frustrating it may have been for the new English governors, 
It was a very interesting time for the English language, as many Dutch words entered the language during this period. To name just a few, coleslaw, boss, cookie, and waffle. An additional problem for the governorship was what to do about Rensselaerwijk. You'll recall that in an attempt to encourage immigration to New Netherland, the Dutch West India Company offered patroonships to those who brought over enough people with them. This was a slice of land on the Hudson that they could rule over in a feudal manner. The patroonship element, like many of those tried by the Dutch West India Company, did not go well, but it had one notable exception. On the upper Hudson, the Van Rensselaer family set up a patroonship known as Rensselaerwijk. The collapse of the Dutch government undermined Rensselaerwijk greatly. The nearby Beaverwijk was problematic enough, but once it received support from the English under the name of Albany, Rensselaerwijk became a real issue. The Van Rensselaers got in touch with the Duke of York directly in order to try and resolve the situation, and it would ultimately take 20 years until 1683 for the matter to be finally settled. The feudal era of Rensselaerwijk was over. They would have an economic privilege that was allowed to remain, but it lost its political independence. The patroon was allowed a seat on the Albany court, and he could nominate other members, but it was a great weakening of his old powers of maintaining a court. What I'm hoping to put across with all these anecdotes is just how difficult it was for Nichols to manage the English takeover of the colony. It took a great deal out of him, and he asked to be replaced. The man selected was Colonel Francis Lovelace, a staunch royalist who had spent time in the colonies. He was selected in April 1667 and arrived in March 1668, and he continued his government in much the same manner. One of Lovelace's priorities was improving the infrastructure of the colony by improving roads, expanding the colony's shipbuilding industry, and promoting more commercial activity. While there was Indian activity, and we will get on to King Philip's War in our next episode, defence was neglected. While Lovelace was mindful of the future, his neglect of the present would come back to haunt the region. To explain what was happening, we need to go back to Europe. England was humiliated after losing the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Sure, she had gained New York, but the Spice Island of Run was lost, and her prestige was dented. Charles took great issue with this, and so he plotted to get revenge. The reason that the Second Anglo-Dutch War didn't go very far was the French. King Louis Fourteenth of France wanted control of the Spanish Netherlands, and the English didn't want a French client state there. The Dutch didn't want to be a French client state, but they were forced to accept French help against the English. Charles decided that this was his weakness, and so he sought to break apart the alliance. He made warm movements towards the Dutch in the open, meaning that they naturally drifted away from France, while at the same time, Charles made the secret Treaty of Dover in 1670, planning to effectively divide the Netherlands between French and English control. It did not take long for action to take place, and the Third Anglo-Dutch War began in 1672. The Dutch were unhappy about how their Atlantic Empire had been weakened, 
and so the States General ordered raids against the English in the Caribbean and the Chesapeake. As soon as the fully armed and operational Dutch fleet sailed north, it found itself off the coast of New York, and found that the colony was quite defenceless, just as it had been when they lost it to the English. In addition, Lovelace was out of the colony, having a meeting in Connecticut. The Dutch sailed in, New York City surrendered, and on July 30th, 1673, New Netherland was born again. New York City was renamed New Orange, a new government was set up, and began the long overdue process of setting up a real defence for the colony. Lovelace was captured upon his return, and expelled. He returned to England and was seized for debt by the Duke of York. He was placed in the Tower of London in 1674, and died a year later. The New Englanders were very unhappy about this and clamoured to do something, but they couldn't organise a response. There was nothing that could be done. It was lucky for the English that the Dutch didn't really want New Netherland. In 1674, a peace treaty was agreed in which New Netherland was returned to the English and New York was back, this time for good. They also paid an indemnity to the English and Suriname was confirmed as a Dutch colony. This would mark the end of the Dutch and English conflict for over a hundred years. In fact, in 1677, Charles II forced his niece, Mary, to marry the Prince of Orange, William, something of huge importance to history. But this is where we will end things for this week. It's only a short episode, but I don't want to advance into the 1680s anywhere just yet. We'll leave things in New York here, and next time turn towards King Philip's War. Once we've dealt with that, we can go back down south to cover Maryland and Carolina, then we'll begin our history of Native Americans. But that is all for the future. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. We're also on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at historyjamie. You can also send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>